no sun up in the sky, stormy weather. Since my man and I ain't together, keeps raining all the time. Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere, stormy weather. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our study of Harlem Renaissance writers with Rudolf Fischer's mystery novel, The Conjure Man Dies. The Conjure Man Dies by Rudolf Fischer was published in 1932. It's a classic murder mystery story of the Harlem Renaissance. And according to at least some sources I've come across, the first mystery novel by an African-American. I'm not sure if that's just from the United States or across all the Americas. Uh, I have a hard time believing it's the very first mystery novel ever by anyone in the American black diaspora, but it might be true. Um, so if anyone knows for sure, uh, please let me know. So Rudolf Fischer was born in 1897 in Washington in a religious family. Um, actually, you know, I give biography of all these writers with their novels, and they're so young when they're writing these novels. They're, they're all born in the in the 1880s, 1890s. So it's a very, very young generation of writers. Anyways, his father was a reverend. He grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, possibly literally switching places with George Seiler, who was born in Providence, Rhode Island, but grew up in, in New York. In 1919, he graduated from Brown University with degrees in English and biology. He then went on to medical school at Howard, where he graduated in 1924. His fame from that point on was probably largely based on his medical work. He, he worked in bacteriology and radiology. Um, and he, these are this medical interest really comes off in his work, at least in The Conjurement Dies. I, did, I didn't read his other novels. In the later 1920s, he worked in New York City and became the head of a, of a Roten Genealogy Department. So Roten Genealogy is simply a form of radiology. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't know if they still have it, but it's a technique of radiology. And he became the head of that department at International Hospital in New York City. In the early 1930s, he was working in private practice and had moved on to journalism, reporting mostly on the nightlife of Harlem. And that's something that really comes off in this novel, too, The Conjurement Dies. He wrote two novels, The Walls of Jericho in 1928, and then he wrote this one, The Conjure Man Dies in 1932. He died only two years later, uh, very tragically, um, due to a stomach operation. So he was only, what, 35 years old or so when he died of a, some kind of stomach illness and a stomach operation. So in addition to his novels, he wrote enough short stories to have them published in a posthumous collection. Again, something I haven't looked at. Um, he also has an interesting New Deal connection in that The Conjure Man Died was produced by the Harlem branch of the Federal Theater Project, which was a branch of essentially the WPA programs, which was trying to put out of work intellectuals uh, into jobs. You had the Federal Writers Project, of course, but this was the Federal Theater Project, which set up a lot of theaters throughout, throughout America. Now, The Conjure Man Dies is really, really a fun novel. And I'm not going to, in the I'm two episodes on this, I'm not going to give you kind of the play-by-play -play of the plot as I normally do. I'll 
do a bit of that for the first episode, but in the second episode, I think I'm going to focus more just on the themes because I, I don't want to give off the the whole mystery here. Um, I'm not sure the etiquette on that. I'll, I'll set it up in this episode, and then and then and the second episode focus mostly on the themes of the novel. It really works as a very clever mystery with a really good twist and a really good device. It's a nice slice of life story of Harlem where we have these wonderful characters. Even the suspects are these characters. I, when I read it, I was thinking even of these Law and Order episodes where you know, even the minor people who are just passing through the story of suspects or people they interview you know, sometimes have little quirky character traits um, or reflect different aspects of New York City. You get a little bit of that here in The Conjurman Dies for sure. Now, even though it's not very political or even very realistic, it deals with important issues facing African Americans in the 1930s, particularly urban life, the struggle for employment. It, it's set, of course, in the Depression. So that's another layer of, of the story in a way. And it deals with policing. And this is the first time police violence or, or the police targeting African Americans has come up as, as an overt theme uh, in, in these books. So anyway, in the opening chapter, we're introduced to Harlem. So let, let's read how, how Rudolph Fisher described Harlem. Encountering the bright, lighted gaiety of Harlem 7th Avenue, the frigid midwinter night seemed to relent a little. She had given Battery Park a chill stare, and she would undoubtedly freeze the Bronx. But here in the mid-realm of rhythm and laughter, she seemed to grow warmer and friendlier, observing, perhaps, that those who dwelt there were mysteriously dark like herself. Of this favor, the avenue promptly took advantage. Sidewalks barren to the cold, white day now sprouted life like fields in spring. Along swung boys in camel hair besides girls in bunny and muskrat. Broad, flat heels clacked. The high, narrow ones clicked, reluctantly leaving the disgorging theaters or eagerly seeking the voracious dance halls. There were loud jest and louder laughter and the frequent uplifting of merry voices in the moment's most popular song. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. What's it that you got? Makes my wife thinks you're so hot. Oh, but my you dog, I'll be glad when you're gone. But all of Black Harm was not thus gay and bright. In a number of dark, chill, silent side streets declining the relenting night's favor. 130th Street, for example, east of Lenox, Lenox Avenue, was at this moment cold, still, and narrowly forbidding. One glanced down at this block and was glad one's destination lay elsewhere. Its concentrated gloom was only intensified by the occasional sprangle of electric light splashed ineffectually against the blackness or by the unearthly pallor of the sky in which the walls of dwellings rose to hide the moon. So we get this picture of, of you know, different layers of Harlem, even just one or, or two blocks away from each other. Um, and this is followed by an introduction to one of our heroes, one of our detectives, really. It's Dr. John Archer. He's working late uh, when his work is just, it's like almost midnight. And he's working late and he's almost, he's disturbed by a man coming asking for his help. He tells him that Frimbo, the fortune teller, who's next door, has fallen ill or perhaps worse or was injured. The caller is named Bubber Brown. The man who found Frimbo is Jinx Jenkins, who has seen Frimbo for you know, voodoo, fortune-telling stuff. Conjurement stuff, right? They were there to get advice about, from Frimbo about starting a new business when they bumped into Frimbo's body on the floor. 
Next, we're introduced to the detective. Well, actually, he's the th actually the third detective we have met so far in the story. If you consider Archer, the the doctor becomes a detective, and as we'll learn later on, Barbara Brown is a detective uh, of sorts, if not an official one, and helps with the mystery certainly. And then we have our real, our official detective, the police guy. His name is Perry Dart. He's one of the few black men in the Harlem Police Department, and one of the handful who have become a det detective. And there's a hint here, although not stated. I guess in specific numbers, but uh, that the Harlem police force is not being representative of the of the people who live there. Um, well, all we have is that he's just one of a handful who had become detectives. It's not really clear about the rank and file police force, um, but you know, police are going to be an issue in this in this novel. He is on call that night when he gets a phone call from Doctor Archer. Dart then goes to Frimble's office. And with Archer's help, starts to collect the forensic evidence. So the first half of the novel is essentially setting up the mystery, collecting evidence, and interviewing suspects. Now, I don't really read a lot of mystery novels, and maybe this is the way they're always done, so it might not be special, but that's kind of how it's set up. And then the second half, we see development of the characters, and then the final mystery being resolved. But on a side note, this is one area where this novel really excels, though, the collecting of the forensic evidence. Fisher was a physician, and we can tell that he's using his medical knowledge to deepen the mystery in the story. And he, perhaps he's doing things that other mystery writers perhaps couldn't have done because he is so attuned to, you know, the details of forensic evidence, especially like on blood. And, and I, again, I don't know the, the history of forensic medicine in the United States when blood types are being used to solve mysteries, but blood typing becomes a theme here. And they, they actually collect the, the blood of the, of the victim, and that's going to be a, an issue later on when they compare it to um, another person. Anyways, as they're searching for the forensic evidence, they find a white handkerchief in Frimbo's throat. Now, Archer is instantly fascinated by the case, and is easily seduced by Dart and disdain to see it through. They search the house and determine that Frimbo is... Many things at once. He seems to be an intellectual. He seems to be very well educated. They determine he's an African. They find out he's a womanizer as well. They, they know he got a degree from Harvard. He has many, many books on the question of free will versus determinism, which is a very interesting thing for a conjurer to have, I guess. Um, of course, fortune telling, whether you believe in it or not, is fundamentally a question of free will versus determinism. Right. So here's how they sum it up. A native African, a Harvard graduate, a student of philosophy, and a sorcerer. There's something wrong with that picture. Well, does it throw any light on who killed him? Anything that throws light on the man's character might help. Well, let's get down to it. You want to go through the rest of the house and we'll get, to his and get down to the real job? You worry about his character, I'll worry about the character of the suspects. So this nice little banter between the, the doctor and the and uh, down-to-earth police detective. So, meanwhile, Jinx and Bubbler are debating superstition in the lobby. There's a lot of great stuff scattered throughout this novel on vernacular culture, on folklore, and the various superstitions, customs that African Americans embrace. And I'll get more into that um, later and in the next episode for sure. I'm not sure how much of this is drawn from life, but as I said from Fisher's biography, he's active in exploring the, the culture, the nightlife of Harlem. And he was writing on it even as he was working as a doctor. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that this is drawn from life, draw, drawn from life likely. 
Um, and he's, he's drawing from real things. But it's certainly enjoyable to read in any case, especially with the characters of Jinx and Bubbler who are friends. They're both very vulgar. They're a bit of, of scammers and tricksters. They, they have to always have schemes going on, which makes them kind of suspicious people in the story. Um, and then at the end of the novel, Bubbler really sticks his neck out for Jinx. And it, it really brings a nice closure to their character and their friendship. And it's really nice. Art and Archer come back and Archer realizes a woman is in the lobby. It's, it's, it's Mrs. Crouch. Now Archer's the neighborhood doctor, so he knows some of these people. and He knows a little bit about their history and their character. Continuing their search, they find what they think might be the murder weapon, which is really kind of cool. It's, it's a human femur topped with a silver knob fashioned into a human skull. So you can imagine this staff almost, human skull staff. Previously, Jinx and Bubbler were talking about this, the skull appearing in the form of a cloud. So we got kind of the forensic, realistic, collecting evidence side, talking, you know, look, finding the skull. And we have Jinx and Bubbler talking about a cloud appearing as a skull in the sky. The more superstitious, the more um, believing um, side of it. Um, and then, of course, the detective's going to accept kind of the free will argument because... They want to put blame on the criminal, so they need to believe in free will to a degree. And then you got Jinx and Bubbler, believers in superstition, who probably buy the, the, the determinism side more. All right, so they also discover that the building is powered with much too much electricity. It's like overpowered, overjuiced. And uh, Archer says this is enough to even power an x-ray. And we find out later on that this becomes part of the show that the conjurer puts on for his customers. Um, also find a jar containing male genitalia. So there's all this kind of weird stuff in in this office, in this conjurer's office. Well, after collecting this kind of forensic evidence, the police move on to the interrogation part of their investigation. We're starting with Bubbler Brown, and they actually sit themselves. The detectives sit themselves as where Frimbo the conjurer would have sat, and recreating kind of the structure of. The question and answer of the fortune telling, but now it's the question and answer of the police, the detectives. So it's revealed that Bubba Brown is a street sweeper, but he's recently taken on the profession of detective, mostly investigating affairs for local people in Harlem, right? He's, he's checking who's cheating on who, right? Um, and we have looked at other novels that deal with relationships in Harlem at this time. So here's a nice little cap to that. Um, so as I suggested before, we actually have three detectives in the story. We have Dart, we have Archer, and we have Bubber. What bothers Dart about Bubber is his precision. Bubbler tells a story, uh, his, especially his time precision, how he knew the exact time when things were taking place. And Bubbler tells a story about how in his one of his investigations at night hinged on the precision of time. And that's why he knew the time everything was happening, because he was doing his own investigation. Um, and we see a little bit of condescension uh, from... Dart, who assumes that this kind of working class Harlemite is not going to know the time. And the fact that he knows it so well is a point of suspicion. It, it's kind of, it's a nice little moment. She also reveals that there's an usher at Frimble's office who's not to be found. Now they get some more interviews from other people. They talk to Jinx, they talk to Mr. Crouch, there's a church woman they talk to later on, and then they, they get some leads, right? 
they, they find out people who may have had an in for Frimbo, maybe people who are connected to him, people who are there doing fortune-telling stuff. Now, of all these, Jinx is the most interesting as he reports directly on what Frimbo told him. So he's able to report directly on the Frimbo encounter. We therefore able, are able to get a window into the actual conversation between a Harla man and a Conjure man. Now, again, I don't know if this is drawn from life, but it certainly is fun. Here was a man who knew something. Didn't talk like an African native, certainly. Didn't talk like a black man Jinx had ever heard. Not a trace of Negro accent. Not a suggestion of dialect. He spoke like a white-haired judge on the bench, easily, smoothly, quietly. There are those who claim the power to read men's lives in crystal spheres. That is other nonsense. I claim the power to read men's lives in their faces. That is completely reasonable. Every experience, every thought leaves its mark. Past and present are written there clearly. He who knows completely the past and the present can deduce the inevitable future, which past and present determine. My crystal sphere, therefore, is your face. By reading correctly what there is, I know what is scheduled to follow, and so can predict and guard you against your future. Yes, and now you have come to the point where you must seek the financial aid of your friends. Being a proud and independent nature, you find this difficult, and yet the fee which you will pay for the advice I give you is borrowed money. Now that's an interesting point. So I want to look at this and say that Frimbo is cold reading these people, right? And if you are a skeptic of the supernatural, you'll read this story and say that's what Frimbo's doing, right? You see a guy coming in, working class, from Harlem. During the Depression, you're going to say, okay, borrowed money. It's a, it's a reasonable thing. But, you know, I've never really been on the other end of fortune telling. Um, I have tried my hand at cold reading people just to show a little bit how it's done. I'm not very good at it, but um, it's it seems that's what Frimbo's doing here. Um, however, there are inconsistencies in the narrative, which seems to point to Jinx being the murderer of Frimbo. At least he's the big suspect at this point in the novel, and he will be for much of the novel. Now, another woman shows up, Ramantha Sneed. He's interviewed, and we learn about her religious heterodoxy. She's a faithful Christian on the one hand, but she also finds use for people like Frimbo in her life. So here's a quote from her. Well, lo and behold, tonight I ain't no sooner got through praying for him at the meeting and took myself on home than he greets me at the door with a cuff side of the head. Just by way of introduction, he says, so next time I'll be there when I come in. And why and who who ain't his supper ready? So I just turn around and walk off. And I thought to myself as I walked, if one medicine man don't help, maybe another will. So I made up my mind. Everyone knows about this man Frimbo. Says he can conjure on down. And I figure I've been taken to the Lord in prayer long enough. So I'm going to take it to the devil. Really, you know, interesting. Now, she seems to be a, a faithful Christian. And, you know, she just comes from church. And then she has trouble with her man. And then she's interested in turning to the dark arts find resolution to her problems. Well, Bubbler follows the police as they go look at some leads in town, including going to a pool hall to find a man named Dottie Hicks. Bubbler wants to get the police to shift their suspicion from Jinx, but he's resigned that police, once they have an idea, are unwilling to change their mind. Now, Dottie Hicks, he has his own story. He's convinced that Dart is dying. And even questions on him. And it's, it's kind of interesting. 
Well, anyways, um, it's chapter 10 of the book, and we get the story, story of Dottie Hicks. And he's after, he wants to see Frimbo dead because he said he thinks Frimbo was killing his brother using this dark magic. So he kind of sought out another conjurement, he says. But he was killing my brother, see? You see? Frimble's a conjure man. He can put spell on folks. One kind of spell to keep him dying like the boy who got a knife stuck in his head. Another kind to set him to dying like he was doing my brother, slowly dying. Misery all in through there. Coffin spells, night sweats, chilled in fevers and wasted away. That's what he was doing to spats. And so he he, he confesses that he, he had to out-conjure him and see another conjure man to kind of cast a reverse spell on, on Trimbo. So this, of course, makes Daddy Hicks a bit of a suspect. The police don't really take seriously this, this magic stuff. And, and so, you know, that's that. Um, there are other levels to this story as the detectives dig up the other connections to Frimbo and the people who had it out for him. But still, the police finally decide that it's Jenkins who's the most likely suspect. Things start to get weird towards the midpoint of the novel as they get reports from a Dr. Winkler who's been studying the body. His He's like the forensic specialist who comes in. His report does not make any sense at all. First of all, he talks about the body he's working on as a woman and that it lacks the head trauma that the police had determined was the cause of death in the first place. And then the bodies seem to disappear. So we have three inconsistencies here. Now, you know, did they just switch the bodies? Did he get confused? But there's no body there to confirm what the hell was going on there. So it's really all messed up. And we get a church woman, another suspect, giving a nice little prayer for Frimbo, which gives us another layer of superstition in the story. Where she says, we know he's a hopeless sinner. Oh, make him see his sins. Make him know he was wrong to steal, wrong to gamble, wrong to drink, wrong to swear, wrong to lie, and wrong to kill. And make him fall on his knees and confess unto salvation before it's too late. Make him realize that though he can't save his body, there's still time to save his soul. So that's when the last day comes and he reaches Jordan's chilly shores. And death puts forward his cold icy hand and lays out on his shoulder and whispers, Come. He can rise up and smile and say, I'm ready. Done make my peace calling. An election show done cast off this no-count flesh and took up the spirit. Um, so we got kind of the, again, the superstition of religion, and that's being contrasted a lot in this novel, kind of the religious and the, and the and I guess the superstitious. And is there really a line there? And it seems in practice, there's not much of a line. People cross over when they want. Religious people go to see conjurmen. And then it's, it's kind of sometimes the same language, um, or the same question of free will versus determinism in Christianity as there is in conjuring. So it, it's, it's kind of nice. Now, as you're trying to make sense of this confusion and all that's going on, there are all these suspects, there's this evidence, there's this confusion about the missing body now. And all, all as the police are trying to pin this murder on Jenkins, the body goes missing, and then there's a series of conflicting and complex motives. At this point of maximum confusion, Frimbo appears alive, and he doesn't deny having been dead. Right? He says, I'm alive. And they say, but, but they said you were dead. And he said they were correct. Without emotion, he says, they were correct. So this puts a whole twist in it. So it seems Frimbo wasn't dead at all. So who is the body? Was the body dead? You know, the blood typing is going to become important in there. You know, is there even a murder? Is there someone to arrest if there's been no murder? 
you know, all these, you know, where's the head wound? All these questions are, have to be resolved in the second half of the story. Well, this is a good place to stop. In the second episode, I'll kind of leave it to you to read the rest of the novel. I'll maybe give a few highlights, but I'm not going to give you the play-by-play to reveal what happened in this fun little mystery. But I will focus mostly next next episode on the major themes of the novel and uh, how it fits into the Harlem Renaissance and the other themes we've been looking at in this in this series. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. I'm weary all the time, the time, so weary all the time. When he went away, the blues walked in and met me. If he stays away, old rocking chair will get me. All I do is pray the Lord above will let me walk.